Michigan's Children proudly presents Speaking for Kids, the podcast where we explore crucial conversations impacting the lives of all Michigan children, youth, and families, especially the most vulnerable. Join us each month as we explore public policies and issues in the best interest of our kids and families. We'll bring you lawmakers and policymakers, advocates fighting for change, and the people most affected by those decisions. With our host, Matt Gillard, president and CEO of Michigan's Children, we'll invite you to become engaged, too, and show you how to take action on what matters most to you. Episodes are recorded live and shared virtually on YouTube and the audio hosting sites, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome back to Speaking for Kids, the podcast for Michigan's Children. I'm your host, Matt Gillard, the president and CEO of Michigan's Children. Today, we're addressing kinship care in Michigan and the case for increasing support for families and kids. It's a topic on the minds of many advocates and families as we observe National Kinship Care Awareness this month. And as advocates and families gather on Wednesday, September 27th, to meet with lawmakers at the state capitol for a legislative day sponsored by the Michigan Kinship Care Coalition and Michigan's Children. Did you know that for every child being raised by a relative or kin within the child welfare system, there are 18 more kids living with relatives in informal arrangements outside of the system? Relatives who become licensed foster parents are subject to government supports and services that other kin raising kids aren't, even though the needs of the children are usually about the same. That's the estimate made by the National Advocacy Group, Generations United, and it's key to what we're going to be addressing today with our guests. Joining us today is Senior Policy Analyst Stephanie Armendaris from Chapin Hill, the Independent Policy Research Center at the University of Chicago. Stephanie works extensively with state and local child welfare jurisdictions across the country, building the capacity to implement evidence-based strategies to improve well-being and outcomes for children and families. She recently published the research brief, Diverting Children from Foster to Kinship Care, the Issue and the Evidence. We're happy you're here today, Stephanie. Also with us today is our good friend, Deb Frisbee, who is the co-chair of the Michigan Kinship Care Coalition's Policy and Advocacy Committee to talk about what kinship care advocates are looking for in Lansing this week and how real Michigan families are affected by the circumstances that Stephanie writes about. Deb, it's always glad to have you here as well. Stephanie, we'll kick things off with you. In your report, you point out that child welfare agencies view placing children with a family member or kin who knows and loves them as the best option for a child's well-being, particularly when there's been a traumatic, traumatic event that's left them unable to live with their own parents. Tell us briefly about the benefits of that and also the shortcomings of when kids are placed in informal or what you call diverted care. Well, thank you for having me, Matt, and um, I'm excited to be here. I'm uh, Stephanie Armendariz, uh, Senior Policy Analyst at Chapin Hall. So within the child welfare system, placing children in kinship care is generally viewed as best practice. Now, we're talking about kinship foster care in those situations. So when compared to children in foster care with strangers, children in kinship foster care experience greater placement stability, more positive identity formation, connectedness and a sense of belonging, and improved behavioral outcomes. But when we talk about having better supports for kinship families across the child welfare system, it's also crucial to acknowledge the different ways that kinship families form and how it impacts their access to services and supports. So there are really three types of kinship families, formal, informal, and diverted. Formal kinship families are the ones that the child welfare system is most familiar with. So these families form when the state assumes placement and care responsibility for a child and facilitates their living arrangement with a family member or close family friend. The kinship caregiver provides either licensed or unlicensed foster care with the oversight from the state. Um, as of 2021, there were about uh, 
134,000 children living with kinship foster, living in kinship foster care in the United States. Uh, that accounts for more than a third of the children placed in out-of-home state custody. Now, it's important that we don't just talk about kinship families in the child welfare system because the population of kinship families is much larger than that. Generations United estimates that for every child in the formal kinship foster care system, there are 18 children living in informal kinship arrangements outside of the child welfare system. Informal kinship families form without child welfare involvement when parents and kin caregivers agree that the child should live with kin. So these are situations where it's really the parent's decision um, in partnership with the kinship caregiver and there's no system involvement at all. The total population of informal kinship families is not clear because many of these families have no contact with the child welfare system. Diverted kinship families, which is the group that I focus on in my brief, um, they form when parents agree to a plan established in partnership with the child welfare agency where the child goes to live with kin for a period of time. This is often to prevent the agency from pursuing an involuntary placement in court. So the child welfare agency facilitates this change of physical custody, meaning the child moves and lives in a different home without taking the child into state custody, which means taking them into foster care. And then after that, the state maintains limited involvement with the family after. And so it's difficult to determine how many children live in this type of kinship care because the practice varies within and across jurisdictions. And in addition, it's not tracked consistently in state's administrative data systems. This type of family is also often conflated with informal kinship families, but the key difference is the way that this family is formed and the child welfare involvement in that formation. So in my policy brief, I focus on this last group, children who've been diverted from the foster care system into kinship care. Now, um, advocates of this practice uh, would say that the, some of the advantages are families may prefer to stay outside of the formal system, and it gives families greater control because foster care comes with the risk of disruption or uh, termination of parental rights. And so by never taking the child into foster care, uh, they're able to avoid those risks. Kinship diversion is also sometimes regarded as advantageous in situations where the caregiver may not be able to meet foster care licensing standards. Um, and we'll talk a little bit around barriers to foster care licensing standards later because some of those are also related to equity considerations. Um, similarly, a qualitative study conducted by Child Trends in 2016 found that families in the child welfare um, system really view the, sorry, uh, Similarly, a qualitative study conducted by Child Trends in 2016 found that families uh, and child welfare staff view the rules and regulations of foster care as intrusive and not family friendly. So um, both child welfare staff and families are trying to avoid the child welfare system and diversion often keeps children out of the foster care system and allows families to maintain more control and remain the primary decision maker about what's best for the child. Now, a key question here as we think about opportunities for prevention is how can we ensure that children in kinship care, their kin caregivers and their parents have access to services and supports they need without having to enter the child welfare system? And that is something that the field is really thinking about because there are a lot of disadvantages to kinship diversion. So legal advocates raise concerns about parents' rights, the lack of regulation and court oversight, and inadequate support for the care of the child, specifically financial supports, as well as services that the child might need. 
So families don't receive consistent and comprehensive information about all possible service and custody options before they make this decision for kinship diversion. So although a parent is agreeing to this situation, um, if an agency is considering removing the child from the home, frontline staff and um, parents are the primary decision makers, but the parents may not have the full amount of information about how that decision could impact the long term. Many families also don't realize that foster care licensure would make the family eligible for financial and other supports, which are not available when kinship diversion is used. And again, one of the reasons that we want to think about ways that families can access supports, uh, especially financial supports outside of the foster care system, is so that they don't have to enter the foster care system in order to get access to those resources. So. Like I said, a major area of need is financial support. When compared with caregivers of children in foster care, kinship caregivers of children diverted from the foster care system are more likely to be living in poverty. They're more likely to report financial hardship. And at the same time, they're also less likely to receive TANF or support from the child welfare system to obtain dental care, immunizations, and Medicaid. Now, we need to, we need to consider the equity implications. And as we think about diversion, we see disparities in which children are most likely to be diverted and whether or not they enter the child welfare system later. The federal government does not require child welfare agencies to report how many children are diverted to kin, so it's difficult to determine how many families are impacted by this practice or what their outcomes are. There's not national data on this. However, there are some studies that look at diversion. So we do know that kinship diversion was the most uh, common out-of-home placement. Um, it was near, uh, accounting for nearly half of out-of-home placements in a national sample of 6,000 maltreatment reports between 2009 and 2011. Um, that study found that children ages three to five and children in very poor homes, meaning children under 50% of the federal poverty level, um, and children in rural areas had significantly higher rates of kinship diversion than urban areas. So we think about age, we think about location, we think about family income as um, things that might influence uh, diversion and some of those case level decisions. Um, we also know that white children are more likely to be diverted to kin and less likely to end up in the child welfare system after diversion than children of color. So um, in a different study, an analysis of kinship diversion practice in three states, they found that white children were more likely to be diverted. Um, however, uh, when you looked at the children entering care later, um, children of color overall were 2.1 times more likely than their white peers to enter the child welfare system even after diversion, and black children uh, were 3.2 times more likely um, to enter the the child welfare system later. And so as we think about this as a practice where the goal may be to keep children out of the child welfare system, it isn't working the same for everyone. And we need to um, think about the equity implications of that as well. And then finally- Go ahead, sorry. Oh, finally, we wanna think about the um, foster care licensing standards. So um, as we think about foster care licensing standards, one of the reasons that a case manager or caseworker might uh, divert children to kinship care 
is actually because they believe kinship care is the best placement option, but they may believe that the, the kinship caregiver might not be able to uh, achieve that licensing standard. So um, qualitative uh, qualitative study found that caseworkers believe that children fare worse in foster care, and they may be less likely to offer can that option. Um, also, systemic barriers for foster care licensing, such as citizenship requirements or specifications about number of bedrooms, um, can prevent kinship caregivers of color and kinship caregivers with low incomes from accessing the support that they need to care for the children placed in their home. So I'll pass it back to you, Matt, um, to uh, bring it into the context of Michigan. Thank you. No, thank you, Stephanie. That was very helpful. And thank you for the work that you're doing. So, Deb, let's let's talk about this. So a lot of the issues, obviously, that Stephanie brings up or brought up um, are relevant to the work we're doing, Michigan's Children's doing with your group, with the Kinship Care Coalition as well here in Michigan. So what rings true from her report and what you've just heard Stephanie outline about the situation that you're seeing with uh, with the groups you're working with here in Michigan? Well, I think the the diversion and the informal care that we're talking about is what we have fought so hard for to raise awareness to our legislators that in Michigan, uh, you know, the Generations United estimated 54,000 um, children in Michigan that are in um, informal care without a, a parent living in the home. And that's underestimated when you think about that so many of these children also are living with cousins and uh, siblings and aunts and uncles. And this, this you know, that collection of uh, information was just grand families. So um, the thing that, that I, besides the inequity of the formal foster care system, and the children in um, informal uh, care is that they don't get the benefits that other families are getting in formal foster care, but they don't wanna be in formal foster care. And we don't wanna put every child that comes into care uh, in formal foster care. That, that's that's what, not what we're trying to do. Um, because we know that David and I are working at a local level, and this just started a couple years ago when we heard that there was opioid money coming into, um, into our county. And I said, you know, grandparents are the ripple effect of, of the opioid crisis because those children are being placed with us, and they're being placed with relatives more than likely. And so um, when we started... Uh, you know, uh, going to county commissioners and presenting our case that we should be a part of that money. Um, from that, uh, we started working at a local level and we have formed a human service collaborative work group um, because we have a really strong human service collaborative here in Benzie Manistee, which is a dual county. So, so when we look at um, the informal families, we know that they don't want their children in formal foster care. But the problem is when they were presented with the children, um, 
whether it was the adult children that said, mom, I have a CPS case. And um, they, they, they're talking about, you know, possibly removing the children. Will you take the children? And so uh, grandpa and grandma, whomever, stepped up to the plate and said, yeah, we don't want the kids to go in foster care. We'll take them. So nothing go in, in Michigan, when kids are diverted, nothing goes past CPS. No, no information passes from CPS to the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services where there would, you know, where the case would be taken up if the children had been formally removed. And I always felt like when I started advocating for this back in 2015, I wanted to I wanted to tell our legislators there's a gap. There is a gap because our families are taking these children and being told to go get a formal or to go get a full guardianship not knowing what a full guardianship meant any more than the man in the moon. They sure. just were taking a knee-jerk reaction and going and doing what they trusted was, you know, the the best case scenario for themselves and for the children. And that doesn't always turn out that way. No, absolutely. And no, and I think you're absolutely right here. So Stephanie, back to you for a minute. So, you know, your your report um, looks at this issue in, in the light of evidence findings and then offers some policy and practice recommendations. Um, and as Deb just outlined, you know, we've worked with with the Kinship Care Coalition here in Michigan to outline some, some, some policy priorities as well. Talk about those a little bit. I, you know, and a lot of this obviously comes down to resources, as was talked about by both of you. Um, we see there as in Michigan a real opportunity for us to, to look holistically at what we're doing with TANF dollars from the federal government and utilizing TANF as a resource to support caregivers in the situation like Deb and so many others in these informal or diverted settings. Um, but talk about some policy or practice recommendations from your end, Stephanie, or maybe some other states even that are doing this in a better way. Thanks, Matt. Well, first of all, my overarching recommendation for all of these is that individuals and families who've been impacted by these practices should be engaged as live, lived experts in the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So um, language is so important. And uh, if folks take nothing away from this at all, other than the three categories of formal, diverted, and informal, I would be very happy to get everyone to be talking specifically about diverted families. So like Deb was explaining, the experience that these families are having um, is that they have some interaction with the child welfare system, but they're not necessarily getting connected in the ways that they could be. Now, often we talk about just formal and informal kinship families, and we loop the, um, the diverted families in with informal, um, and we tend to throw up our hands and say, well, we don't know who these families are, where they are. Um, but with diverted families, we could know and we yeah. could be doing a better job of making connections to the service and services and supports that they're going to need and that we know many kinship families in this situation do need. Um, these are situations that often come up uh, within hours or happen overnight. It's not something that folks are planning on. 
Um, also, capturing data is key. So I urge states to explore the prevalence of kinship diversion practices in their state, because um, when when you do take a look at that, uh, often you get a sense of what it looks like um, for the state as a whole, but also there are geographic um, nuances to that that might also be important to consider, even as we think about, you know, this being a practice that's used more often in rural settings and things like that, um, thinking about the different ways that you can um, impact kinship diversion practice once you understand where it's happening, why it's happening, what kinds of things are driving some of those case level decisions. And then also developing mechanisms to monitor the use of kinship diversion and child outcomes associated with the practice. So most jurisdictions um, don't currently collect information on kinship diversion in any systematic way. So when when they want to look at it or explore it, the information actually lives in the case notes of specific um, child welfare cases. And so you can't really go in quickly and get a count of how many diverted kinship families you have or what's happening, where they're going, because that's all in a, a qualitative um, text box that you would have to look at individually for each note. And so there are ways to think about how we organize our data and how we ask questions about and monitor kinship diversion as a practice. Um, I know that changing child welfare databases is a huge undertaking, very time consuming and um, labor intensive, expensive process. And at the same time, right now, a lot of uh, states are changing their child welfare databases in response to some of the changes that they made for the Family First Prevention Services Act, which means that if there's already existing plans and processes underway to make significant changes to the child welfare database, this is an opportunity to add in ways to monitor and get a better sense of what's happening with kinship diversion practice um, and really just piggyback off of all of those other existing database changes. And then finally, as we think about policy and practice, um, we should be exploring how foster care licensing standards prevent barriers to licensure for kinship caregivers. Now, Michigan actually um, is one of the, the standout stars across the country for um, the, the way that you all provide support to um, kinship foster parents, whether or not they're licensed or unlicensed. So um, Michigan is one of the few states in the country that pays licensed and unlicensed kinship foster parents the same dollar amount. Many states pay unlicensed kinship foster parents less than they pay licensed foster parents. Um, so there's going to be an opportunity coming up soon. There's been a federal rule proposed to change licensing standards and have specific licensing standards for kinship because we, as we think about what it looks like to license someone after they already have a child in their home versus the system that has been built around um, families getting licensed in anticipation of welcoming a child into their home. It's just two different systems. Um, so I think there's opportunity to really think about ways to pull down federal funding there. Um, and then finally, at a practice level, um, I recommend exploring targeted practice changes that will solve 
some of the major challenges of kinship diversion. So um, I recommend Annie E. Casey Foundation's supported diversion model. Uh, they suggest that uh, you use an appropriate risk assessment to ensure the living situation safe, that they use facilitated team decision-making with full disclosure of placement options so that families are really understanding what they're getting themselves into and what their choices are, um, an appropriate needs assessment for the child, the kin caregiver, and the parent, and provision of services to meet those needs. So really thinking about the triad of child, parent, kin caregiver, rather than just what does the child need or what does the kin caregiver need. Um, and then a way home for birth parents so that they get the support that they need to reunify. Um, and then caregiver legal status and permanency considerations so that kinship caregivers actually have the legal authority to make decisions for a child within their care um, so that you don't end up with a crisis where they need to go to the hospital and then they're not actually authorized to sign anything or do anything for the child because they don't have any formal paperwork that says that they can. Thank, thank you, Stephanie. And I appreciate especially you initially calling out the need for, for kin families and provide, kin providers to be uh, actively involved in the advocacy efforts in, in a part of the discussions and the decision-making process. And that's a big part of what we do at Michigan's Children is to help the, the Kinship Care Coalition and others uh, to have that voice. And, and really, Deb, tomorrow, uh, you know, we're, we're taping this on, on September 26, and tomorrow uh, we'll be bringing advocates and kinship providers to Lansing to meet up with lawmakers and talk for and press for solutions to make things better for these families. So, Deb, give us kind of the, the quick 360 on the three policy priorities that we're pushing for here in Michigan and how they interact with what Stephanie has just outlined. Yeah, so, you know, one of ours, um, because we we just feel like there's still not enough awareness with our legislators of the kids who are on the outside of the formal welfare or uh, formal welfare child welfare system. So one of our asks is to form a you know we want to talk to legislators about a legislative caucus. Um, we feel like we really can help educate. We can we can we can really work together. Um, on that. So that's one of them. The second one is uh, boilerplate language that we're asking for. And that would be for the department to um, research and develop uh, pilot programs in, um, in maybe three counties in Michigan. And David and I, uh, who is a retired child welfare director have already, like I talked about in Benzie Manistee, been working towards what would that look like? And I, you know, when you talk about uh, family involvement and, and having the family part of the process, we just really feel like we have a human service collaborative with our mental health people, with our faith community, with, you know, there's, there's in this county, there's probably 50 to schools. They're all sitting on that human service collaborative and they all want to help families. And right now we're siloed and we don't have to be siloed if we work at this local level because everybody wants to offer services to these families. And I feel like we could work in a, in a wraparound sort of way um, if we could develop what David and I would like to see for Benzie Manistee. And, and that would be a position for a, um, uh, probably a master level social worker um, at the court 
and they would be able to um, number one, inform the families of what those different guardianships look like and the best way to enter into that 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 guardianship situation um, so that they're making a choice and not a knee-jerk reaction. And then we can evaluate what they need. And we just feel like, you know, we can, you know, have targeted services for them that 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 we can't do with legislation or state level um you know, oversight, um, because these, they, you know, our, our rural community is different than an urban community. And so one isn't going to fit all. So anyhow, it's the boilerplate language that we're asking for, for MDHHS to develop pilot programs. Um, I forget exactly what the terminology, what, uh, you know, terms we used in that, um, that's one of them. And the other thing is this data collection. You know, I'm shocked when we um, went to the state administrative uh, court's uh, uh, office and asked for some um, data, just general or whatever. They had the they had the Generations United number or whatever. But what really scares me, and this is what I say to legislators, this should scare you. But they told us that. You know, there's 10,000 kids in foster care on the uh, around 10,000 kids in foster care in Michigan at any given time. There's 4,600 of those children are in kinship placements right now in the formal foster care system. The underestimated 54,000 kids who are in Michigan living outside of the formal child welfare system, out of those, the court administrator's office was able to give us a number of 33,287 children who are in power of attorneys that, that with no legal tool whatsoever. And I talked to my own court administrator here in Benzi, and she says, oh, we hand those out all the time. I talk to people every day that don't even know they expire in six months. They've signed it, they have it, they bring the child to the doctor, they bring it with them and they say, this expired, we can't treat your child. I have families who um, took the children in and their Medicare was in mom's name and grandma can't, Grandma can't get that switched out of her name. The other thing that we have in Michigan is that of all the people who are eligible for TANF, the child only grant or ineligible grantee, out of all these families who are eligible for that, I think there's only 5,000 of them in Michigan that actually have accessed that. Why? Because they don't know about it. Nobody's told them. They went and got a full guardianship and that was it. And nobody talks to them again until their annual review. Well, how are things going? You know, with the judge. Well, we're going to keep the placement the same. Does, you know, you're telling me that mom hasn't made any progress. No, mom hasn't made any progress. Nobody has a plan for her to make any progress. Yeah. No, and that and that and that goes to the point Stephanie made earlier about about um 
you know, the, the resources, the access to resources and the knowledge of available resources. And I think we need to address it on both ends, right? We need to make more resources available, but we also have to do a better job of supporting people as they enter these situations to know what's out there and what is available. And, and the data collection is hard, but I'll be honest. I mean, we work on a lot of children's advocacy issues and family advocacy issues, and data collection is hard on a lot of different things, but we've done a better job in some areas of figuring it out, and it needs to be a priority. And so, uh, you know, we're certainly grateful to have folks like you uh, working on these issues. Uh, Deb, we're grateful for the partnership we have with the Kinship Care Coalition here in Michigan and you and so many others. And, and Stephanie, we're certainly thankful for the work that you're doing at the national level. Before we close out here, any last topics you want to address uh, or, or things to leave folks with before we do our quick closing? All right. Well, I want to thank Stephanie Armendaris, who's a senior policy analyst at Chapin Hall at the University of Chicago, and our good friend Deborah Frisbee, who's the co-chair of the Policy and Advocacy Committee with the Michigan Kinship Care Coalition. Uh, as Deb and I have said, a number of uh, kinship providers and, and active advocates in this space will be at the state capitol tomorrow and will continue beyond tomorrow advocating with our legislators and elected officials about these needed changes and about bringing more attention and prioritization to this important issue. If you want to learn more about this issue, you can always find more information on our website at michiganschildren.org. And thanks for tuning into this podcast. Uh, and stay tuned for more episodes, upcoming episodes on other important issues affecting kids and families here in Michigan on future podcast episodes for Speaking for Kids. Thanks and have a good day. You've been listening to Speaking for Kids, the podcast for Michigan's children with host Matt Gillard. Thanks for joining us. To explore these and other issues relevant to our state's children, youth, and families, and to build your advocacy muscle, go to our website at www.michiganschildren.org. You'll find links and news about past and future podcast topics under our resource tab and action alerts under the Take Action tab. Find and like us on Facebook and Twitter. Terry Bannis and Stephen Wallace produced this podcast. Contact them with your questions and ideas for other topics. Michigan's Children is a nonprofit advocacy organization, an independent voice working to reduce disparities in child outcomes from cradle to career through policy change.